uh, unspoken questions and unspoken things that kind of are underneath the surface. And we want to be able to begin dialoguing and discussing some of these topics and some of these things. So one of the things that we want is we've had some questions brought in. We've got panelists. Um, and we want them to be able to give their perspective and answer some of these questions that came through. But understand all of the questions uh, probably won't solve or answer everything that you may be asking. We're limited by time. And so we know that this is something that we're going to continue to talk about and bring to the table. Hopefully not only we do it in, uh, in a setting like this, but hopefully we're going back to our small groups and we're having dialogue on a personal level and hopefully getting to understand each other. We're not all going to walk out in agreement. Because we are different, and we have a different understanding based on a number of different factors, the way we were raised, interpretation of scripture, um, a, a lot of hurts, and the way we view the world, all kind of things. So, uh, but what we wanted to do is to allow um, our panel to, to discuss some of these things, uh, to allow voices to be heard, and to begin the process of discussion. So what we're going to do tonight to begin with, we're going to uh, have our panelists speak. I want you guys to, we'll start with Chaplin, introduce yourself, give us a little bit about your background, and then give us your understanding or your take right now in race and relations, uh, right now in our present age and time. Okay. Am I on? Yeah. I'm uh, born in the South in Texas. Um, I was born in a town in Greenville, Texas, East Texas. And for years, I had a sign, a billboard that says, the blackest land and the whitest people. And, that's, uh, and that sign set up there for many years until after the civil rights and, and some other things happened before they took that sign down. So uh, uh, I understood segregation. Uh, there was colored fountains and white fountains. There was colored bathrooms and white bathrooms that, you know, uh, as you go downtown, uh, you know, you had your... Uh, had the blacks had their bathrooms, the white had their bathrooms. So uh, uh, I was born in that area. Uh, uh, I went to all, in a, not an integrated school, my school, all black school, because uh, I graduated from high school in 1963, so that gives you an idea, you know, first of all, how old I am, and the next thing, uh, <laughs> uh, what era I come through. Uh, I remember sitting at counter, you know, protesting uh, during the Martin Luther King time. So I've been a part of all that, and uh, my perspective on what was formed by that, uh, by the culture in which I lived at that time, you know, uh, the, the inferior, insuperior, uh, you know. And so uh, what is the answer to some of those things? And, and, uh, uh, and we, I'll talk about that later on. So. But uh, I think that pretty much answers what you would ask. Okay? All right. Hi, I'm obviously the white female representative on this panel. And, um, but I think the reason I'm here is because, um, be, pretty much because of what I'm doing at UNO with my research. And um, I got my master's degree in social psychology, which addresses how groups of people impact individual behaviors. And then I'm getting my PhD in developmental psychology. So I've taken tons of sociology, anthropology, psychology classes. But my research the whole time that I've been there has been related to ethnic identity and how that impacts young adults' um, 
persistence in college for U.S. minority students, international minority students, and U.S. majority students, and the role that education plays in that. And I'm actually tracking about 600 students at UNO with very, very diverse backgrounds, most of them, um, more than half of them from like low SES and at-risk um, student populations, and tracking um, what factors help them integrate and how their, uh, the strength of their ethnic identity impacts their integration on a college campus and their success or failure in college. So I'm kind of in the middle of like the academic component of this issue. Well, I'm Walter Hooker, and I have my doctorate in psychology and the relationship of... <laughs> Most of you uh, heard my testimony this morning. I'm from North Carolina, uh, raised in a black home, half black city. Uh, I went through uh, integration, so I, I got to see how all that mixed. And one of the things that uh, that that you might want to know about me is I'm married to Melba Hooker, Melba Stand Up, Stand Up. And if you look at her, she's a mix of uh, black, Native American, and what I thought when I first met her was poor white trash. Now, some of y'all don't know what that is, but, but where we came from, if you were of her color and you look like she did, but you act like black people, then you became poor white trash because obviously she's white and she acts black because... You couldn't be white and look like she looks, but she is partially white. So our experience together has been amazing. Um, just, just great doing life with her, but we love seeing people come together from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and, and different races. And, and it's part of our relationship together, and it's part of what we do in ministry. So we are glad to be here tonight. Thank you for having us. I am Majid. I was born in Sudan. I was born to an immigrant family from Egypt, and I was a minority in the neighborhood. Maybe we were only two families in the middle of all darker-skinned people, Muslims, and we were the only two families, me and my cousins, who are Christians. So my experience is mixed with uh, racism, with religious... <laughs> tensions, I would say, and I'm married to Sarah. Sarah is half Sudanese. She doesn't, uh, she's not completely Sudanese. She's half Sudanese and half Egyptian from her mother's side. So, and we have uh, four kids who are having a crisis identity, I believe. <laughs> Hi, my name is Logan Lee. Um, born and raised here in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I am uh, half African-American and half white. My dad is black. My mom is white. So growing up for me was interesting because a lot of times you hear about people who have biracial identity who feel torn between each one, and I really actually never felt that way. For me, growing up, I thought and acted white. I assumed, you know, the school district I went to was over 90% white, so that was kind of how I processed my life until I was about 21, and I took my first trip to the Middle East, Coming back after that, I met my beautiful wife, who's sitting right here in the second row. Um, and so for me, when people started looking at me in that part of the world and thinking that I was Egyptian or from you know some other background, it got me thinking for the first time in my life, well, should I even think like that? Um, so, and I think a lot of that for me is our generation, you know, millennials. 
Um, for me, I think the second part of your question was, where do I see race relations right now? Um, inside the church, I almost want to use the word post-racial. You almost want to be careful with that, but I really, that's just what I see is interracial relationships and friendships is so common that I don't think most of us think about it in the way that uh, Pastor Hooker and uh, Chaplain Jackson would have thought from that generation. So, Good evening. Um, I'm Daley Davies. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the privilege of serving on this panel. Um, I'm a Nigerian, was born in Nigeria, lived there till I was 15, and then moved to England. Now, just to make one point, Nigeria was under British rule for many years. And I grew up when it was already transferred to the Africans, but we, thought we do have that sort of track record of uh, being under British rule. But I'll tell you that I grew up, the president was, I guess, uh, African. The, all the ministers were African. All the people that I knew were African. So the, the concept of race was not something that, I, that even crossed my dictum for the first 15 years of my life until I went to England and then actually England, you know, I sort of was more in, more in integrated school then went to Canada and then the United States and then I can, I can certainly share some experiences since then. But I think my perspective has been to view everybody um, with the, the sense that, uh, w with the best intent in mind and not to, I, I, partly because I didn't have the the same experiences that I know my, my, a lot of my African-American brothers and sisters did with the, ch the, the challenges they faced. I've faced my own challenges, but I still view everybody through the prism of, you know, thinking about you in the best possible light until you prove me wrong, and then, <laughs> then I'll deal with it. But then I also want to make sure that I don't let the last bad experience, which I've experienced. I know people who've, whose views about life has been tainted by the one experience that they've had. And I really make sure that that's not my, my story. And we'll come back to more of that once we have some more conversations. And by the way, just one more thing. This is not a repudiation of my race. I love my race. But I am not black. I am golden. And I, honestly, I look in the mirror and I don't see black. And I don't want anybody else to define who I am. And I've told that to my kids. I am golden, and you know, I, I never think of myself as being, to me, that's, that's just a label. I'm not black, I'm golden. Again, it's, nothing to, it's not about not wanting to associate. And I find that when I think that way, and I actually, when I look at people that way, I see something totally different than when I think of them as being black. Uh, my name is Nicholas Peterson, and um, I'm just the other generic white person. Um, <laughs> I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and uh, for most of most of my upbringing, everybody I knew was white. Um, I, I had amazing, godly parents that that taught me uh, about how God views us, and and I think set a good perspective. Uh, in spite of the fact that there was really no one around to practice those good biblical teachings, and so most of my adult life has been an acute awareness of the fact that I have a perspective that um, is, is pretty, pretty broad in terms of a Western white male and that there are a lot of other perspectives that I just have no way to understand. And so, um, but I need to listen and, and try to learn that. And, and, and so 
there's a certain amount of sensitivity that comes with that with wanting to uh, w- wanting to listen and to learn but also have um, a respectful conversation about that here tonight so so that's where I'm coming from uh, Rafael Aristi I was born in Dominican Republic um, it's a Latin American country it's an island and uh, you know the one thing that I found out when I moved to Omaha Nebraska when people ask me if I was Mexican, or they say, do you speak Mexican? That was like lighting me on fire. <laughs> and I was not saved. It, it was, and it was not safe for you if you were in the room. So I uh, moved to New York City. My parents moved to New York City when I was 13 years old. Um, I, I enjoy life in the Caribbean, summer every day, loved it, came to New York. And I was for many years until I moved to Omaha, exactly what Pastor Hook said this morning. And even when I moved to Omaha, before I got saved, I was part of the 65%. I had no white friends whatsoever. I, when I came to New York, um, white was either police or a boss. That's it. So every, everything was through those lenses. I've seen everything through that paradigm. Um, you know, that, that whole thought of the white man is going to keep you down. I lived through it. All my friends, family members, everybody spoke that way. Um, so when I moved to Omaha, um, I experienced uh, racism firsthand in New York City by police because of the way I look. So when I came to Omaha, I was very guarded. And when I came to the malls here and I go and, and, and I go into a store, I have people asking me, every single person working in the store will ask me, oh, can I help you? I didn't ask for your help. Why are you following me around? And I was very, very guarded. Um, and, uh, you know, the first time ever that I experienced um, uh, racism as an immigrant uh, was here in Omaha. Um, I went to apply, and this is, I'm just sharing this with you so you understand my context here where, you know, before I gave my life to Christ, how, how my, the lenses that I was viewing things from, and I know some of you in here are immigrants as well. Um, I, I applied for an apartment. Um, I went in there. They, they say, oh, you, okay, everything checks out. They show me the apartment. When they came back, I filled out an application. They told me there's something wrong with your, with your social security. The lady said that to me. I went and I went and I said, okay, so what do I need to do? She's like, well, you got to go to the social security's office. And I said, oh, okay, where's that located? I was new here. I had no idea. They told me where it was. I went with a friend. I went and, and I talked to the lady and it was a white lady. And this white lady said, asked me a few questions. Where was my port of entry? Basically, how did I got to the United States? What was the, the airport that I came through? My mother's name, my father's name, asking my mom's maiden name. I gave all the answers. They said, what was the apartment again? I gave them the card and she called them and she ripped that other lady up. I mean, I could just hear her screaming from the back room. She said, you know, you discriminate against this young man and he has no problem with social security. So I'm going to send them back and you blah, blah, blah. So I went back there and the other lady was basically shaking. <laughs> she, she just gave me the keys to the apartment. She said, here. And I said, don't I need, to? no, 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 here. Just have the keys. I'm sorry. It was a mess up. And then, and then when I, I understood was that, see, racial lines is very drawn on the sand here in Omaha. They are. And. It was in West Omaha that I was getting an apartment. I was the first Hispanic in that whole apartment complex. The first one. And she probably had done that before. And the people that she said that to, they probably did not have papers. So you go to the Social Security office and they're like, okay, fine, bye, I'm out of here. 
So that was my experience. So anyway, we'll get to talk a little bit more about those things. Okay, so uh, most of you guys know, but I'm Jason Carter. And the only thing really that I'm here for is uh, I grew up in the South. And um, I was an athlete. I played high school ball. And uh, in football, I was the only white guy who started for two years on our football team. And this is from the, the mouth of the coach. He said, it seems like you've made a record. You're the first white person who has ever started, from, started for me for two years. My nickname was White Boy. And uh, that was what they called me for years. That was it. They didn't call me by name. They called me by White Boy. I knew it was a slam initially, but I could play. And eventually it became a badge of honor. Uh, and something that um, when they talked, to me, talked about me, it was something... Um, I was a teammate. I had an interesting um, incident when I went to Tuskegee, and I was one of only two white people in there, and I, I kept a guy from dunking when I was playing basketball, and they, uh, the, the crowd literally were telling me they were going to kill me. They and the, the other team met me coming off the floor at halftime, and guess who had my back? my teammates. And it was just this interesting dynamic of, um, you know, blood doesn't necessarily necessarily have to be within your own race. There, there's something that goes much deeper. And, um, you know, when I got saved, literally my heart, um, I, I just love people regardless. So, uh, I'm, I tend to be the person that pokes the bear. I can't let stuff that needs to be talked talk about, and we have to talk about it. And so one of the things that I want us to do is I know there's things that bubbles underneath the surface and we need to discuss it um, and, and, and see what God can do about at least allowing us to discuss and build relationships and get it out. So that's my part. So just to kind of throw a softball, and we'll get into the uh, some other stuff in just a minute, I want to start with... Um, how do internationals approach race relations in America? How do internationals approach race relations in America? Dr. Daly. Well, you already heard sort of somewhat of my view. I think, um, you know, I work with a lot of people who are from different backgrounds. Most of the people I work with are white. Um, one of the things that I've always told my wife, and she's fortunately we, we agree on this, is, I've never wanted to go to a black church. I've never wanted to go to a white church. And we actually sought out this church. We were seeking a church that had an international flavor. We, we attended such a church in Lansing, Michigan, before we moved here. And we just loved the interplay, the variety, to be able to relate to people from different places. I think it might be called by the fact that I've lived in so many countries. I've visited 21, and I've lived in England, Canada, and now the United States. And so when I look at people, I see people. There are a couple of things that really have shaped my view on race, and I think two pivotal incidents. One, and I'll share both of them. One was I was skiing. Um, I learned to ski when I was 23, so you can imagine this golden boy going down the hill, um, just having learned, and everybody, you know, there was one time the ski patrol thought I was going to kill. Everybody was in my way because I was going so fast, and I couldn't stop. In any case, I did learn to ski, but there was one time I had a wipeout, and I saw a lot of people going by, and I couldn't get up. I was having trouble getting up because I was still learning at that time. And these two kids, white kids, 
saw me and I heard one of them say, hey, look at that guy. He looks like he's struggling. And they both came and they helped me. And that had a profound influence, impact on me that they, they didn't have to do that. They stopped and they helped me. Another experience I remember vividly was in Toronto. I was walking and there were two people. One looked like he was Native American. The other one was Caucasian. And as I was going by, one of them turned to me and said, I hate you, used a, a swear word, and used an N-word. And, and I said, really? What did you say? He's, he repeated it. I said, I hate you. And he repeated those words. And I said, what, what do you mean? And then he came, do you want to fight? And before I knew it, this guy was beginning to swing at me. And so what did I do? I, I mean, in those days, I, did, I, I knew judo. So I knew that there was no way... I was going to box this guy because clearly he wants, was looking for a punching, punching contest, and I knew that there's no way. But when he threw a punch at me, I basically turned into him, and I threw him on the ground and pinned him. And, you know, before, well, I didn't do nothing, man. I didn't do nothing, man. But what really caught my attention was there were several people watching. Nobody, nobody, sought to, nobody lifted a finger. There were people watching, and I was actually trying to get their attention. Nobody lifted a finger to help. And I remember even calling the police, and when they came, they, saw, they came first of an hour later, and they said, oh, you know, it was almost like, what's the big deal? But that really had a profound influence. But I think what I decided at that time was that I was going to make sure, I mean, I think I could have gone two ways. One, to say I'm going to never want to help anyone. But I thought to myself, I'm going to make sure that if I ever see anybody in that situation, I'm going to stick my neck out to help them. So that was the attitude that I took, and that really has been my mindset since then. It's where I see injustice. I take it as a priority to make sure whether you're black, white, golden, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, I'm there to make sure that I do what I can to intervene. And I think so, going back to how do I view, uh, how do internationals view race relations, I think for me, I love people and when I see you, I take you at face value and I, you know, I, I just you know, presume that your, your intent is the best. And until you show me that it's not, that's how I that's how I move. That's the premise under which I, I interact with you. Um, and in terms of the church, I certainly agree. I think this is a great church. Clearly, there are issues in terms of, you know, we come from different political stripes and different backgrounds. And, you know, whenever there's an election, there's always tension because everybody's sitting on eggs. So I think that just knowing that we're all bonded by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ makes a big difference, I think, in terms of how we should be viewing one another. So I'll stop there. Magic, would you like to answer? Uh, I don't know how to say it because we have experienced it, or I have experienced it being the only white, if you can say I'm white, uh, among non-whites. So I have experienced it, and I, I felt how bitter that is. Although there were not, where I lived, it was not no killing. No, nothing in the Constitution that separates whites from non-whites or black from whites or segregates against anybody, but I could see it and feel it. But when I met American people, I met them missionaries, and they were mixed from different colors, races, and that's what I kind of saw. But when I came here, I found that there are also people who have different perspective from those nice missionaries. <laughs> Last winter, <laughs> I was driving my car. It was 
not a very in a very good shape. It was uh, there was snow on the on the on the road, and I was driving a bit. I won't say too fast, but a bit fast, because I was afraid to get stuck or slide. <laughs> and then somebody opened the window. I was driving behind him. He kind of changed lane and opened the window. Go back to where you came from. Go back to Mexico. <laughs> and I shouted at him and I said, I'm not from Mexico. <laughs> <That's American>. so, <laughs> but at the same time, I met very nice people, white people who didn't care and they helped everybody regardless of anything. The first winter we came, it's always in winter, you know. Racism appears or <laughs> the good in people appear in winter, both. <laughs> Me and Sarah, this was the first winter we were here, 2009. It was very bad and our cars were not ready for it. Snow was piling the roads. Nobody was cleaning the roads even in South Omaha. And we got stuck with two cars, tried to go out after being stuck in snowstorm for a few days and we wanted to go buy food, you know. <laughs> so uh, a guy with a big truck, a white guy, he came and pulled us, our cars from the, when we went stuck he went around and we got stuck again and he came again and pulled us out. <laughs> so my experience is mixed. I have seen people who are really from both colors that are, are not racist. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. And my church back home was also a mixed church where all the black don't believe. Oh, Christian who is white? I went in that. And I also, <laughs> the others who don't believe I'm not a Muslim because all lighter colors are Muslim. So. I don't know. I think I see one of the things I see, the bad things I see is that people are living in the past. They can't overcome the past, many on both sides. That's, I think that's the biggest thing, the biggest problem. That's good. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with the first question that was, uh, that we took that came in. It says, being someone of black, Japanese, and Korean backgrounds, I felt pulled culturally in multiple directions all my life. Some blacks want me to side with them. The Asian side of my family wants me to adhere to the traditions. I tell people that I cannot, will not pick sides, that I am me, and I'm good enough as is. And this is coming from my experience just in the church body for the past 30 years. So how does a multiracial man survive in a city where colored lines are strongly outlined in north, south, south, and west Omaha, even within the church? Anybody feel like taking that one? Yeah. Is this on? Okay. I'll start. Um, side with Jesus. Um, I think that uh, when you, the first thing is when you have your identity in Christ, a lot of these things tend to fade away. And I don't want to like say that it doesn't matter. I don't want to say that um, being black doesn't matter, being Asian doesn't matter, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I do think that um, when you look at Jesus first, that is always the place you jump off from, right? So if you start from there and you think about, okay, where have I came from? What's my background? What have I experienced? There might be some things that I have to work through. Maybe I need to sit down with my family and go, look, mom, look, dad, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins. I love you guys, but here's what I believe. 
I'm not gonna pick who I am, I am who I am. My name's Logan, Logan is Logan, I'm not black, I'm not white. You're not black, Japanese, Korean, you are who you are. Um, now, in that, there might be some things culturally that, oh, um, language, music, food, I might lean more towards this side, on this side I might lean more in fashion, I mean, those are like details. So that's what I would say, that's my view on um, how you'd go about that. Uh, my perspective is that uh, being a chaplain in jail where I'm dealing with different cultures, different races, different, you know, people from different backgrounds, and uh, in, in the program in which I uh, sponsor there and oversee uh, the life learning program, the Godmod, a.k.a. known as the Godmod, uh, I let the guys know uh, right up front that you're who you are because of God's purpose for your life. You're black because God had a purpose for you. I said, you being who you are, uh, if you're a white gentleman, uh, you could talk to some people that I would never be able to talk to. They wouldn't listen to me. But you can go back to your neighborhood, you can go back to your homies, and you can talk to them, and they'll listen to you, your, your life, uh, because, you know, because it's God's purpose. Everybody in this room, God designed. God did not make a mistake. He did not make you black. If you're black, he didn't make you black because he made a mistake, or you're white because he made a mistake. He purposed you for a particular, specifically purpose. And you, and only you can fulfill that purpose, you know, there are people that you can reach. There are people that you can evangelize that I can't, that the pastor can't. And so that's the purpose God has for you, for your life. And so that would be my answer to the person who has uh, the different ethics back, uh, family. You know, you who you are because of that, the purpose God has for your life. And, and that's why, you know. Just real quick, I think it's important to differentiate between um, personal journeys of your own ethnicity and your own race and how it fits into the city you live in and all that, the personal journey that this guy has with, you know, being biracial and the strong ethnicities on both sides, that's a personal journey. And then the other component is the bigger thing. How do I fit in at work? How do I fit in at school? What's going to happen with my kids and stuff like that? And so it's like, I think what Chaplain Jackson was just talking about was so much about how it has to start with our acceptance and dealing with who we are in Christ personally. And then, you know, and not generalize that, you know, because if you look at Logan, he's like, hey, being biracial is no big deal, you know. And this question, the being biracial is definitely a big deal, you know. And so it's like this personal journey that's different based on how you've accepted yourself, what he just, what Chaplain Jackson just talked about. So I think it's really important that we don't generalize our own uh, struggles with who we are. I wish I were thinner. I wish I were richer, you know, or whatever. And we have to first accept where God places in our life and who we are. And then um, it extends out to our world, our family, stuff like that. Good job. I have, uh, I have a question that's kind of maybe, um, uh, there, there are many within the African-American community that feels like they were betrayed by the church in the support of uh, President Trump. And maybe not hearing uh, the social justice issues and maybe even race relations and police uh, abuse um, with shootings. And maybe the church has been tone deaf to a degree in, in, uh, in relation to that. What would you guys say um, to those who feel like the church has not responded well to some of these issues? 
Amen. <laughs> Could you elaborate? <laughs> uh, it's been so interesting to me as I, as the last eight to 12 years as we watched our political climate in our country with uh, President Obama and then President Trump. And, and God is just, you know, God is so incredibly smart. And sometimes we just don't get it. Uh, the challenges that we run into, God allows them to make us better. And I, I believe God is setting the church up with, with, our, with our situation in our country for us to succeed if we will choose to be different than what people want to make us. I'm a black man, and, and my friends, my mama, you know, you guys heard me talk about my mama this morning. I got on the phone with her, and she says, well... Trump did it again. And then she'll say, you voted for Trump, didn't you? <laughs> She's always trying to put me in a box and, and make us something. But the Bible, it makes it clear what we're supposed to do. If we'll just do what God says, it, it doesn't become difficult. But what happens is we allow our color, our culture to try to put us in a box to make us fit into something that God doesn't want us to fit. God says, this is, you're not of this world. And above anything, I'm not, I'm not of this world. I'm black. Doc, I'm totally different than you. I'm black. I love being black. I love, I, there's no, nothing else I'd rather be than what I am. I believe God made me this way for a reason. But I'm not going to let the fact that I'm black, people tell me how to think. And how not to think. And how to choose and how not to choose. And personally, for, for me and my wife, our family is as President Trump was elected, um, uh, that Sunday, as, as normal, when President Obama got elected, uh, my senior pastor, Pastor Hoyt, was not in town. So I had to, that Sunday morning, stand up before our congregation and, and welcome in the new president, as any good pastor would do for his people. And I, both Sundays, it was amazing because I gave the same speech for two different reasons, but it was the same speech. For those of you who are Democrat, you are disappointed. For those of you who are Republican, you're disappointed. But that doesn't matter because God has given us a president. And we are going to support our president. So let's start out right now by praying uh, for our president. And, and what we find is that, and, and, and church, hear me. We are not, God is not a Democrat. He's not. I'm, I'm sorry. Some of you, that's hard for you to accept. God is not a Republican. <laughs> I know for some of you, you don't believe that, but it's true. God does not vote Republican. God votes God. And, and what we have to do is find God in the midst of the world. Um, I haven't traveled a lot of the world. And, Doc, you might can help me. And you also. But in most countries, the church and the government are two different things. How the government operates is not based upon how the church operates. And in America, we try to make our government the church. It, it will not work. The government of the United States will never be the church. We've seen that through our history. But we, the church, can affect our government if we lead well. And our problem in the church is we have not led well. We've tried to follow something that God never intended for us to follow. So concerning our president, concerning the political situation that we're in today and that we will be in tomorrow, we have to choose to support whoever God chooses, whoever God allows to be our leader, and support them. We don't have to agree with everything they say and everything they do. But we pray for them according to the word of God. And, and, and we help them lead our country. Not choosing to say we're Democrat or Republican. 
No problem with that. But understand, God is bigger than a, than a, than a party. God is God, and we serve him. Yeah. Amen. So I, I agree with that. I think the challenge for us as a church is to make sure that we are equally either quiet or loud, depending on the circumstance. And I think the challenge has been that it, for the church in general in the United States, it appears as if when there is somebody in power that we like and we agree with, then we obey God's word to pray for them. But when we don't like them, either way, then we, we actually not even, not, not only do we not pray for them, we actually go out and skewer them. And I think that that is not a good reflection of what we should be as believers. I think that, you know, and, you know, I've said this before. I said this before the elections were, were held. I said it on this pulpit that we're all going to be disappointed. Somebody's going to get disappointed, even through the, through the primaries. Somebody's going to be disappointed because your, your favorite leader gets knocked out of the primaries or, and, and it was either between Clinton and President Trump and half of the country at least would be disappointed. So I think the fundamental thing we've got to really start thinking about as a church is we are here in a foreign country. You know, we're here. Our home is not till we get to heaven. And our job is to obey the word of God and to seek, seek God's face. You may remember that, you know, Daniel did not serve Christian leaders. And he served them with honor and dignity. And he still, you know, he was a loyal believer. Joseph, Pharaoh was not a nice guy. I mean, you know, he was just chopped off the head of his of his baker. So it wasn't exactly Mr. Nice Guy, but Joseph served him with honor and dignity. And I think that we as believers have to remember that no matter who is in power, half of the church is going to be in some form of pain. And we've got to remember that our job is to be responsible and to think about always reminding everybody that we've got to pray for our leader. That's what the Bible teaches us. And, you know, and I, you know, I prayed for President Obama. I'm praying for President Trump. And we do that together in a small group. Every, every small group we have, we pray for the president. So we don't have a choice to choose who we pray for just because we like them. We are commanded. It's not, it's not a suggestion. And we're certainly not, not given the option of skewering. I mean, you can have private conversations, but skewering the president, whether you like them or not, is not an option, I believe. This is just my own personal conviction that we have been given as believers. And by the way, I'm, I'm, proud of, I'm proud of who I am, too. I'm just making the point that when I look in the mirror, I don't see black, and that's truth. I mean, I'm just telling you the way it is. I'm just, I'm, that's what I, I don't want anybody to, to condition me to think because there's a lot of negativity that's been put with, you know, with, with that term, and, and I'm, I'm very proud of my race. I'm proud of everybody who's black, and I'll just put it out there, but the issue is I think when I, for me, when I look at my brothers and sisters in the audience, and I see you as golden in my mind. It changes how I see you. That's all I'm saying. Just I see you in a very different way. Amen. Um, just real quick on this thing of politics and race. Um, along with the challenges that we face as the church. I want to echo what, what Dr. Daly said. Um, but also we want to, want to make sure that we seek to understand more than we seek to be understood. There are people that have a different perspective than you do. And instead of fighting for your perspective, seek to understand where they come from. See, when I hear all of the, the stuff that's coming down the pike when it comes to 
uh, immigration. And you may say, yeah, let's keep those legal aliens out. Term that really hurts, you know, illegal aliens. Well, where do you come from? Another planet? Just being honest with you, you know, um, this political, the political climate in this country has even more solidified the racial divide. In my own family, when this whole political thing came through and the election was happening, I had to be a referee. I mean, my sisters, my brother, my mom, all these people, my dad, they're all super saved. Filled with the Holy Spirit. They're running the ministry. I mean, I'm talking to you about people that prophesy, that pray for the sick, they get healed, all of that. But there was a whole lot of let me get out the glove kind of fight in my house. Why? Because there was very strong feelings about what Trump represents and what the perceived agenda is. But I echo what these gentlemen just said tonight. What's God's agenda? See, because as a Hispanic male here, I could say, you know what? I could say that we're in church so we could use hell to hell with this dude, right? With his immigration agenda and trying to limit the uh, immigrants coming into this country. This country was founded by immigrants that found, you know, we all came from somewhere, right? But it's to seek to understand. Why are my brothers and sisters, African-Americans, so hurt with Trump and with the political climate? Why are my wife, friends... So hurt when Trump, when, when, when Obama was in power. And we just can't dismiss that. We can't just, you know, sweep it under the rug and say, we're all good. You could be mad. You could be all mad. And we'll celebrate that Trump is president. And guess what? There's a whole bunch of brothers and sisters that are hurting because of it. So now let's seek to understand. And that's what this dialogue is all about. Okay, here's a question. How do I, as a white male traditional Christian, not get offended or rise above being called a bigot, a racist, or a xenophobe? I stand with the marginalized, reflective about my own shortcomings, socially conscious, try to be loving and Christ-like to all when it comes to race and gender. How would you address a, a white guy? I'm making the reach for the mic. <laughs> As everybody can see, Nicholas is fairly okay. white. I didn't write that question, for the record. It's such a great, what a great discussion. Okay, so um, as a white male living in America, living in a Western culture, um, and really everyone, we all have lots of things we take for granted, right? On small levels and big levels. And I'm acutely aware that there's a lot of things that I don't know that I don't know. You know? There's a lot of things that I take for granted that, um, that I may not even be aware of. And so I think for my demographic, just to begin with, that I'll, I'll speak from, let's start there. Um, uh, there's a lot of things I probably take for granted. And that comes out in a lot of different terms. And, and, and again, don't want to make that political. But, like, um, start by listening, 
and it sounds like this person is in the right place, but like, like start by actually listening and start by understanding, understanding that like, um, I come from a place for me where, um, it's easy to love people that, that look just like you and act just like you and, and, um, and, and have the exact same background that gets difficult when it starts getting mixed up and you start being around people that are not like you because it becomes natural to create tribes and to create boxes and to put labels on people. And ultimately that leads to an us and them mentality. Um, I think that that is the most unchristian thing that I can think of. This idea of division from people and saying, and, and, uh, taking take into account, I understand I have a different perspective, but that perspective doesn't mean that I draw a line and, 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 and um, in any way try to uh, create my own thing and my own perspective. I should be sacrificing my perspective to learn your perspective. So let's start there. And I think if we start there, we'll get a long, long ways. Let's turn that us and them mentality that is so natural that's per, like just fundamental to humanity i mean that's just how hum, humans work and think but that's not how jesus thinks so this is kind of the part of our nature that we need that needs to die that's the old self that needs to die and we need to, to live in the way that that christ lives and and think in the way that christ thinks and and christ didn't think us or them he thought us for them let me sacrifice my perspective to listen and to do the, the best I can by the grace of God to understand your perspective. I think if you start there you, and, and enter into that humbly, you won't be called those names. Um, but don't let, also don't let that be, uh, keep you from having the dialogue. Just come, come in, lean into that dialogue humbly and with that sacrificial sort of, state in the way that Jesus did. I think for white people, because we're, at least in the United States, part of the majority group, um, it's, it's very um, difficult to understand what it's like to be in the minority group. So because you've never been in the minority group. And, um, and so like, for example, my son and I were having this argument at home one day because he was convinced that males and females are equal in the United States, and women are treated exactly the same. And I was like, they're not treated exactly the same, and blah, 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 and finally I said, are, have you ever been a female? No, so you don't know if I'm being treated differently in the workplace, right? Because you've never been a female. All you've been is a white male. And so I think if all you've been is a white male, it's, or, you know, just part of the majority group in any country, you know, and Magic talked about the different people groups, you know, in Sudan, and I think it's important for us to remember it's not just the United States. This happens in every single country because this is part of human nature and the fall of man and all that, this and that. So, but anyway, if you haven't been part of the, you know, if you are a white male, um, I don't think you might not even realize if you're doing or saying things that are, you know, bigoted. Because you, you might have, like, total innocent, like, no evil motives whatsoever. But if you've never not been a white male, it's very hard to know how you're perceived by somebody that's not a white male. And it's for any minority group. It could be rich people and poor people, 
you know, male and female, anything like that. And so I think that um, just making just the awareness, just the basic awareness of realizing that people from different backgrounds, any type of different background at all, is, are going to perceive everything you say, everything you do, how you dress. It's the same way as somebody, you know, from another country thinking I'm dressed immodestly for whatever reason. That's just because they have a different, different lenses. They're viewing everything through. And so you might be, uh, as a white person, we might be doing our same something that's um, that someone else has seen with different lenses that don't make any sense to us and so I think it's not like I don't think you necessarily have to take it like you're I'm a bad horrible person because I offended somebody that has a different skin color but you need to understand that maybe what you're doing or saying is perceived differently than it would be if you're saying that to another white male for example or a man or woman or whatever so um, so I think that I think that as a majority group we have a responsibility, in my opinion, to understand that people that aren't part of the majority group are going to say and are going to hear and see and view what we do differently because they're, they have a different cultural or ethnic lens through which they're seeing what you're doing and saying. And so rather than getting mad about it, just acknowledge it and say, cool, you know, it's like, okay, that is seen as immodest. If I bare my shoulders in India, that's seen as immodest. That doesn't make an Indian person a bad person and me a good person or me a bad person and them a good person. It's just the way it is, you know? So I think we just have to acknowledge it and realize and realize that we're different and embrace that. And that doesn't mean you have to change and stop being a white male. And that doesn't mean that someone that's an African-American has to, or a woman has to try to be a man doesn't mean any of that. It just means we have to acknowledge that, and then we need to perhaps raise our sensitivity, especially if you're part of the majority group, raise your sensitivity to the fact that people are seeing and hearing things differently than you might be trying to communicate them. Yeah, I, thank you, because there's something I wanted to, to do quickly. How many of you consider yourself white? Let me see your hands. All the white people raise your hand. I, I love doing that. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, now, now watch this. Of those of you who just raised your hand as white people, how many think that you are a beneficiary of white privilege? Now look around the room. All of you should raise your hand because you are. From my point of view, you have it so much easier than we have it. And that's my perspective. And you need to understand they, whenever you're dealing in the majority, I don't want to generalize too much, but the vast majority of the time, as you as a white majority person, when you're dealing with someone of a minority, you are coming from a place of privilege. As this individual is speaking, he doesn't see himself as being privileged. He sees himself being a put upon. So when he's talking to someone like me and saying, oh, poor me, I mean, look, there's a bigot because people think that I'm like that. You need to receive that. White people, my brother, you need to receive that because that's part of being privileged in this country is people are going to see you that way. They're going to categorize you as the KKK. They, they're going to see you. That's from what you are born from. That's part of your history. That's who you are. So you just need to understand it. Not saying that's who you are. No one can put you in that box. But being smart, white people, you need to understand that's, that's the cross you got to carry is our history. The church, we are carrying our cross because of our history, the way we treated black people. Our nation, 
white people you're carrying across the how we treated Native Americans. That's, that's part of how they see us. So let's not come to the table like we are all equal. equal. <laughs> that's God's view. But in our view, the people you're dealing with, Christians and non-Christians, family and non-family, the table is not equal. So when you as a white person throw out there that you're feeling like you're getting put upon, we just laugh. We say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You, you live a day in a woman's shoes. You live a day as a black man and try to get a job or, or, or drive through certain parts of town. And you will understand what it means to be put upon. Not telling you it's right or wrong. But if you're smart and you're trying to help change the climate, you receive that. Say, yeah, man, you're right. I have lived a privileged life. And sometimes I feel like uh, I'm being, things are being thrown at me that I don't deserve. But I understand that's part of my history. That's part of being a white man in America. And I think, as uh, Raphael said, that's part of listening. That's a good listening skill is not to automatically fight the impression, but receive it and then talk about it. Don't reject it because that's that person's perspective of you. Like, I'm not rejecting his perspective of being a bigot. Yeah, man, I totally understand how you feel that way. It's not right that you feel that way. I'm sorry that I even feel that way about you because I don't even know you. You're just a white guy. But my initial opinion of you, you're coming from a place of privilege and I'm coming from a place of less than. And to add just briefly to what, to what Hook was saying, even what we say tells you what place you're coming from. Like, I know that you guys have heard this, heard this before, right? Why don't black people just get over it? I mean, let's just be real. Why don't you just get over it? It happened hundreds of years ago. You were not even part of it. What does that say? You have no context. You have not walked in those shoes. How about Native Americans? Ain't nobody took land from you. Oh, really? Well, we've kept that. That's been what's been taught to us. That's been what we've lived with. That less than mentality. That's why when I get a paycheck, I'm going to go buy me a $250 pair of Jordans, even though I don't have food. You know why? Because I have no idea when my next meal is coming, but at least I get to buy something that makes me feel good. But a lot of us can't understand that. It's not the lenses that we see through. So that speaks, those comments speak highly about where we come from. Just get over it. I would. So uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I was in the South, and I worked at a shoe store. And this is uh, about two years after I got saved. So um, I, I was working, and it was closing time. So what we would do, instead of running people out at closing time, we'd allow them to shop, and we would just uh, stay later and allow them to purchase shoes or whatever it was. And um, I remember as I closed the gates... Um, a little uh, African-American kid said, Mama, are they going to keep us as slaves? And so sometimes what happens is because we don't see slavery or it hasn't happened in uh, our culture or our time, we don't see the effects of uh, 300, 400 years of oppression. And, and, it, and it's... Uh, I, I still... You know, I talked about it in a message a while back, and I, I always view through this lens. Um, we created, white people created, uh, a place where men and women were inferior 
three-fifths of a human. They were sold. Think about this for a second. Treated like animals. Separated from families. Black or colored and white. I still remember as a kid reading about Jesse Owens, who was not served. Great, greatest sprinter probably of all time and had to go around back to get breakfast. Made in the image of God. And so it's, listen, as a white guy, I don't even know what to do anymore. Because I don't know that I have a seat at the table when it comes to discussion, discussions on race. But I know that I have to be part of the solution. And a lot of that's going to be listening. But I acknowledge um, you, you got a whole history of, um, of issues that basically white people have created. And, um, you know, we need God's help to, to get through it. And I, I, you know, um, but I I just want to tell you from their perspective, um, in, in that night, that African-American family, that little kid literally believed he was about to become my slave. And, um, it it was just, it, it impacted me greatly and opened my eyes to, um, just maybe, maybe their situation. So, um, I, let me read this next question. Um, because there was a, a Native American question as well. Are Native Americans going to be included in a discussion, and we can't tonight, on different ethnicities? We have our own culture, but the message we often get from the white culture is that we shouldn't have our own culture. How do we incorporate our ethnic values? And maybe uh, you can speak to not just Native American, but uh, different ethnicities as well. And uh, how do we incorporate our ethnic values and culture, but not allow them to supersede Christian values? Well, coming from another culture, um, I think, you know, Christianity is really about Jesus Christ. It's about loving Christ and understanding what he did for us at Calvary. But, you know, it always has to, culture always plays a role in the interpretation of Christianity. And so I think one of the most beautiful things in this church is when we have International Praise Night and we have the pastor embracing people from different cultures. You see people dressed in different garbs and, you know, praying in their own language. We're praying to the same God. We're worshiping the same God. And so I think one of the beautiful things about a church like this is the appreciation that you can have a choir where you have people who sometimes wear head wraps, like my wife sometimes does, Um, and you have people who are dressed in a sari, and you have people who, you know, Chinese, who may be dressed in, you know, traditional Chinese clothes, but we're all doing the same thing. We're all worshiping God. We're all praising God. And I think, you know, where it becomes an issue is where the culture supersedes the message. And I believe that, you know, we, we have, in, every culture is so rich. I mean, we, we have a very, we believe we have a very rich culture in Nigeria. And we celebrate that. You know, we, we dress up often in that way. And I don't think that one has to defeat the other one. But I think the key thing is that we can't then let the culture supersede our belief and our, and our worshiping of Jesus Christ. In other words, if it gets in the way of our ability to worship Christ, then it becomes an issue. So, for example... Several generations, you may wonder what a golden boy from Nigeria is doing with a name like Davies. It's a nice Welsh name, and I guarantee you there's not a drop of Welsh in me. <laughs> but several generations back, 
The family name was Ogumade, which literally means the god of iron has been crowned. Literally. And so what happened was, you know, when my ancestor, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, accepted Christ, I think they felt a compelling need that the name needed to be changed. And I can only imply that that name is the name of, has to do with the missionaries who evangelized my family. So, you know, it's really, that's what I'm talking about, where sometimes, you know, and again, this is not for everybody, by the way. I'm not suggesting that everybody who has a name should change it. But I'm just telling you, I didn't do it. Somebody did it way before me. But the point is, I think, we can celebrate our culture, and we can still all be united as one, you know, I always joke when I go around here and I see someone, I say, you know, your father feels, you know, Pastor Jason, I know, Daddy, your daddy really loves you. You know, and you say, well, do you know my daddy? That's usually the question that comes. I say, yeah, I know your daddy because he's also mine. We have the same daddy. You know, and I think that's really the bottom line. But we also have to be very careful. It's a personal thing. If you start to believe that your culture is getting in the way of your ability to truly worship God and follow him, then I think that's when you really have to examine whether... Um, there's something going on there. I think um, what's going on at GT with Pastor Walton, what's going on here is beautiful. That you guys are celebrating differences rather than allowing differences to, to, to divide you. And I think in our lives personally, as you're doing it on a church level, we can do it in our personal lives. Man, if you have a friend that's Native American, man, I would love to come over and, and, and learn about your family. I would love to sit down and have an, uh, a Native American meal. Man, do you have any Native American clothing? I would, I would love to learn. And, and the more we are inquisitive, you know, just allowing them to be Native American, appreciating their differences, not allowing it to divide, but allowing it to enhance who we are, then that person doesn't feel like their culture is a hindrance to their worshiping God. I think that's one of the things we need to learn in the church on a personal level is that we can enhance our cultures if we would view them as something that makes us better, not worse. It's when I meet someone that's different than me, not automatically say, oh, man, this is going to, I don't understand their language. I don't understand uh, why they do this. Or why. But, man, tell me why. Help me understand. Man, I love the way you guys dress. I mean, is that a traditional thing? Is that a family? Just being more open to people who are different than we are. Not just on a church level, but in our personal lives. Because that's where it makes a difference. Not just on that hour and a half on Sunday morning. That's important. But what we do in our personal lives in getting to know people and welcoming people who are different than us. Nice. I have, um, I have one more question. As we're getting probably closer to what time is it? Okay, 20 minutes. Um, how would you address, and we had multiple questions in relation to this, how would you address the idea that the gospel is a white man's gospel? Through the years, um, scripture has been used to uh, condone slavery um, and a number of, of questions in relation to that. How do, you, how do you address that idea or that concept of uh, the Bible being a white man's gospel? Okay, so Jesus was definitely not white European. <laughs> if you've been to the Middle East, you'll see what people look like over there. My wife is one of them. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, the Bible has absolutely been used by people throughout history to condone all sorts of terrible things. We all know that. Um, there's no excuse for that, and there's a lot of healing that is still going on because of that. 
um, whether it's crusades and slavery, taking things way out of context. Um, so I think because that's been misrepresented, it's still out there. And so I think that um, understanding your identity in Christ is the most important thing. And I really feel like that's something that my generation is going to have to take with is this global perspective of we are one church, we're one body. So there is no, there is one gospel, right? So it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your race, your ethno-linguistic group. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So for me, um, from my perspective, I really think that's where you have to start and you have to go, okay, um, the gospel is the same gospel wherever you come from. And I don't want to say that there's not healing that still take place because there is. Um, and I think that's going to take time. And like Pastor Raphael said, listening, getting to know one another. Um, I know my wife and I have had a lot of conversations um, from her background, you know, being Arabic, Christian, and female. It's like three strikes are out. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that I really had to kind of understand from that part of the world and that culture and kind of brought it back to me, things I had never even processed. So, yeah. So I want to speak about this whole thing, the white man's gospel. Um, because we, it was done then and we do it today. What do we do? We take the Bible and we take it out of context. We choose what we want to use in it and what we don't want to use in it. We do it fairly often. Just take a little bit of this, as my good brother, Pastor Bobby Clark says, I take a little bit of this. Oh, I take a whole out of that. Mm, none of this. So when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you have you have the context there. But you can't take just one portion of scripture and then make it your own and fly with that. And that is it. Right. And that's what has happened. And then so there are people that have grabbed the Bible, use a passage or use a theme that they feel applies to what they want to do and they run with it. That's how cults get started, right? <laughs> so is it a white man's gospel? That's not how we began. But there, are there some people that have made it to be so? Sure. Are there some people that have made the gospel to be hateful? Sure. There are people out there that, that hate homosexuals in the name of Jesus. Now, is that possible? No, not as I read the word, but that's what we have done. We see somebody that is drunk. What a loser, right? But that's exactly who Jesus came to save. So is it a white man gospel? Not the way that I read it, but I understand. Again, understanding where that mindset comes from and what these questions are happening and are coming from. It's from a heart that is hurt. Because my people were hurt and were abused and were marginalized by this, what you say, good news. It's no good news to me, man. So again, as believers, what do we do with that information? What do we do with what we're doing here, this dialogue that we're having, that we're having today? You know what? To me, as I told my brother Hook today, I said, I'm a color person. Might not be his color. But I have, I have a responsibility in this too. Because one of the, one of the themes that I, that, I, that I hear, and again, I have a lot of color folks in my inner circle. And sometimes we tend to think, well, 
that white folks, they got to take care of this problem. I'm going to just put it out there. We all have a responsibility to play in this. Because tell you what, when I, found, when I moved into my neighborhood last year at about this same time, I was tickled. You guys use that term. I don't say that. <laughs> I have never yeah, heard whatever, this Jason. from a Dominican before. Well, whatever. Uh, I was flabbergasted. Whatever. Man, I was so amped up. That's more the way I talk. That I found out that my neighbors, he was black and she was mixed. And their kids were the same way. And guess what? We became the best of friends right away. A part of my clan, that's what I, that's what I speak. That's what I know. But the rest of the folk that are white folk there, I'm already thinking they're looking at me funny. Because the way I dress, because the way I talk, because the way we're loud. And see, my next door neighbors, they're loud just like I'm loud. And my family's loud. But I got a responsibility. I got a responsibility to make sure that they see that our differences do not have to clash, you know, that we can learn from one another. Man, I'll talk too much about it. I think you, I think you have to go back in history. Uh, when the gospel was taken to Africa, it was taken by uh, the Caucasian race. It was taken by the white race. And so I think that's why the initial, the root of it is thinking it's a, it's, a, it's a white man's gospel because God used a white man to bring the, the gospel to Africa. And then when slavery came in, they brought them back. And, they, and, and so that's where the, the, the misnomer uh, for, for the gospels was come about is because, hey, they get over here and they put us in slavery. You know, this gospel is a white man's gospel. It's not for the black man. And I think that's how initially it's set up. You know, and maybe it's carried over in the culture. You know, you take this same question that you've asked us and take it down to 24th Street and ask them people down now, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. You know, you, this is church answers. You know, you're you going to get some answers out down there that, you know, this reality. I mean, that, that meets people where they are. You know, this is how I feel. This is what I'm really dealing with. And so that's, that's, how, that's how the root of it is, is that God, you know, it's God's doing. He took... He took the gospel to Africa, and he used the white man or the, uh, to, to do that. And so that's the basis why they initially said it's a white man's gospel because what happened, how the gospel was misused and how it was used after that to enslave and to degrade people and how it was used after that, not intentionally to begin with, but after that, hooked on to it and, and made that happen. So that's why uh, it's called a white man gospel. Can I add just just two really quick things, and, and I'll be done. So, on on the topic of how uh, uh, how Christians, the church, has used the gospel and abused it, and 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 the tough stuff that's in the Bible that we don't understand that um, that is so that seems so obviously wrong, but then the other parts there. I, I read the scripture, and there's some tough stuff, right? There's some stuff that's confusing and complicated. It's it's not always so simple. Um, and so one, um, like these perspectives that, uh, you know, Chaplain Jackson just shared and, and, and some things looking back, looking, we, we'd, we'd, uh, be wise to look back through our, the history of our family, the church and, and, and get some context for the ways that the scripture has been abused and start there and learn how it went off and, and went wrong. But we'd also 
uh, be wise to, as we look through scripture, I'm not a pastor, by the way, don't have, d- didn't go to Bible school. I just, I submit myself to the same, same book that you do and, and get just as confused as you might when you read some tough stuff. Understand that the whole thing is about Jesus. The whole thing is about the cross. And, and that's, that's still confusing, right? Like that sounds really simple and yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's still really hard, right? And so, so as we, as you wrestle with this in your personal life and, and read the scripture, submit yourself to it. And with that understanding that whatever I'm reading, uh, it has to point to Jesus and, and Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me, uh, that would allow this to point to Jesus and, and teach me how to live through that? It's working. Uh, I won't defend the church or behavior of people. I mean, I have the similar thing from Muslims when they attack the gospel and uh, the crusades or slavery or this or that. Mistakes of people I don't defend. I apologize for them. But can you point that Jesus did that? He did he own slaves? Did he ever lead a crusade? If he did, that's a completely different matter. There are things, as many have said in the Bible, that are not very clear or difficult or arguable or need some scholars to fight for centuries and they won't settle them. But the clear thing is our example, the whole gospel is Jesus, what he did and what he didn't do. That's our standard yeah just to add one more thing you know it's all about jesus who is jesus jesus is love and i think people care more about you know how much you care about them before they care about what you know and what what your bible has to say and i think we have to remember that as believers that our first true aroma the way our smell as believers should be the love of jesus christ and so I think, well, what does that look like? I mean, how much do we, do we care for our neighbors? How much do we care about things that are going on around us? How much do we, do we ask people to come back the next day when we have it in our power to help them today? Because I think your personal testimony is much more powerful than anything else. If you can share with people how Christ has impacted your life in a loving, caring way, and you show the person in front of you that you love and care about them, they may, they may have read the Bible and they may have heard about all the horrible things that happened through Christianity. But over time, as they start to see, wow, this person is different. There's something about this person, their testimony, the way God's working their lives, something about how they just, the love that they're feeling from you. That's really what I believe, really believe brings people into the kingdom of God, in spite of the history of the church. It's a personal, individual, one-on-one battle that we have to do, and it starts with love. So we're coming to a close. Wanted to um, to end with one question, and uh, we are a multicultural church, uh, but we're multicultural on Sundays and Wednesdays. And we're, we we've gotten to the point where we can meet together, and some small groups are integrated, and 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 we can even have a small group together. But how do we begin to to be honest? And have uncomfortable conversations in a way that begins to, to break down some of the walls or some of the things that are not spoken about that maybe would bring even greater uh, transparency and healing. Um, how do we go about doing that? So 
The question is, more than just meeting on a Wednesday or a Sunday, more than just getting together in a small group, how do we actually have the conversations that bring some real transparency and honest, difficult, hard discussions about race? Just briefly, I think we have to, to live it. We have to live the gospel. The gospel uh, uh, is just not in word, but also in deed. I think we have to live the gospel. Our lives have to uh, exhibit Christ. I mean, we have to, um, to walk in love. We have to love our enemy. We have to pray for our enemy. We have to uh, treat those who mistreat us, the Bible says, you know, uh, to treat them, I mean, not with revenge, but, uh, but treat them in love. So I think, uh, as he was saying, your, your life is your testimony. Paul said we're epistles written. We're written epistles. We, you know, I'm the only Jesus somebody, might, somebody in the jail might see. The way I carry myself and the way I talk, the way I talk, the way I conduct myself, I'm the only Jesus they might see. And so they're drawn to me and says, okay, well, tell me about it. What changed you? What, what made you different? And so I think we just have to live it. And it has to be our life. For me to live is Christ. I think we have to come to that place where, and I don't, I don't know if I'm there yet, but Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And I think when every believer gets to that place where he can actually say, for me to live is Christ, I think uh, it, that's going to uh, make the difference. If Jesus is our example, who did he hang out with? Sinners, <laughs> drug addicts, alcoholics, the woman with, the man with leprosy, he, he touched. The woman with the issue of blood, things that other people would push away. He intentionally, intentionally, with purpose, touched, sat at that table, come to my house. I'm coming, publicans, a room full of publicans. Republicans, for those of you who like to laugh. <laughs> he went to that house, and, and what did the religious people say? They judged him because he was intentional about reaching lost people. Church, we can do this. We can talk to the cows come home. Black people, Native Americans, women are tired of just talk. We got to talk. You're exactly right. We got to sit down and talk because out of relationship, we can make a, we can go forward, but we got to put some action. You got to do something. You got to make friends with people who don't, you got to have them to dinner. You got to play with their kids. Not on Sunday morning, not on Wednesday night, but Mondays and Tuesdays. We have to be intentional. If this is important, if this is important, then we have to do something. And it's not the pastor's job. It's your job. It's your job to break down those walls by being transparent, by being penitent, by living in humility. You know, you, if you say the church is a white man's church, help me understand why you feel that way. Man, I agree with that. We have done some terrible things. Being honest not being defensive, being open, being welcoming, being like Jesus. 
but we got to stop talking. Hear me. We got to talk. This is talk. This is good. We got to have places where we can open up and share, but we got to do something. For us as Christians to say we hate racism and not do something, we're being hypocrites. Hey, um, just in closing here, just to put out a disclaimer from what Pastor Hook just shared. <laughs> Some of you got no business going out there to hang out with sinners. <laughs> They're just going to say it. Okay, I feel led to say it, so I'm going to say it. I say that. Some of you got no business doing that. I'm serious. Some of you are towing the line as it is. There's some of you that are not a really good representation. Because, <laughs> you know, you're already thinking about the answer and the rebuttal and the arguments when that person's talking to you. So you're really not good at that. What you need to do at this point is start somewhere really, really low. Okay? Like level zero. Like if you have no relationship with somebody of color, just don't go out there and go try to say, okay, so what's your problem? <laughs> Not going to work. I'm just being honest. Just trying to teach you, you know, it's just something, something very practical because we have some practical questions. So I don't know anybody of color. I don't hang out with anybody. Oh, I don't have any white friends. How do you do, go about doing that? Okay. Start slow. Start small. Because I, in my mind, I'm already thinking in my neighborhood, for example, when people look at me, I'm already in my mind. I'm, I think I know how they feel about me just because of the way I look. And it may be right. It may not be right. So just letting you know, just as a disclaimer that, you know, some of you are ready and you need to go do something about it. Something big, bigger than what you've been doing. And some other one is just start really small. And it could be in your neighborhood, that neighborhood that those people that look different than you, bake them some cookies. You're good bakers. They do, do something like that. Just something very, very practical. Somebody maybe at work that's different than you, that maybe you have a little bit more relationship with. But something practical, and you could begin that way, you know, and asking the questions and listening. Important. If I just take build up on that, and this is sort of where I started and I'm going to finish with it, I think fundamental to what Pastor Rafael is saying is, you know, we all, we all have our own biases. It's called implicit bias. Everybody has it. No matter what your race is, your ethnicity, you all have your own bias. It could be against women. It could be against men. It could be against a specific race. We all have our own biases. And I think we all have to remember when we're dealing with people that we have to give them the benefit of the doubt up front. I think that's sort of my philosophy is, you know, just give them the benefit of the doubt at least. When you get stopped by a policeman as a person of color, don't assume that they're going to shoot you. And again, I'm not trying to be facetious because I know that's a lot of people in our, that's what we worry about. You know, are we going to, you know, because so what's on the news, but just give them the benefit of the doubt. Just, you know, let's show respect. Just see how it goes. Because most people, the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. That's my belief. The vast majority of people want to do the right thing. And I think as a believer, if you then inject the love of Christ into that, you know, we're not victims. You know, we have, you know, we are children of the living God. Our father is the creator of the universe. And we should remember that we are empowered. You know, we can call on angels to watch over us. You know, so we don't have to worry. I mean, so honestly, if you have a problem with me, that's your problem. <laughs> that's my attitude. You know, that's your problem. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to treat you the same way. I'm going to love you the same way. You know, and then maybe one, one time you'll get over your issue. 
So I think that that's how we need to be as believers is that we have to remember who we are in Jesus Christ first and don't assume that what happened to the next person or what happened the last time should dictate how you move forward. Amen. So real quick, so the question was, what can we do to intentionally kind of bridge the gap between, okay, um, travel, travel, travel. (laughs) Um, I think it's hard for me not to just talk from my experience. I'm part of the last majority white generation in this country. So, okay, so going forward, most of your kids, if they're in their teens or younger, they're Generation Z, and those kids are over 50% not white. So they're Latin, they're Asian, they're black, they're whatever. Um, And so I think it's just the shift. You're born, you grow up. If your child is Nigerian, and my child is half black American, half white, and half Arabic, and they play together, they have no reason to even process that there's a problem going on. And that's just where I come from, and that's kind of what I see with our friends and their kids and how we all kind of relate. I think that when you come from that environment, you it just is a natural progression. Um, and so, yeah. Just, if I can just dovetail that real quick. I agree with that 100%. I think um, some of us, if we're from an older generation, from a generation older than that, one of the best gifts that we can give to the future to the body of Christ is exposing our children to um, a lot of different ethnicities. And we had a, I had an intentional small group for many, many years uh, where I just invited a bunch of women I didn't know. It was like every color on the color wheel. And it took us, none of us knew each other. And it took about five years before we really became friends of meeting every single Friday, every single week. And um, by the, because we were so different. All of us were so different. And, um, and so we developed friendships and our family started getting together and once a month, all of our families and there'd be kids hanging off the walls and tearing things up and, you know, food flying everywhere and all this kind of stuff. By the fifth year, one of the women in my small group that was from Africa said, Carrie, when you do that, that is so rude. You need to, whenever I come over to your house, you need to invite me in. And I was like, You've been coming over my house for five years. Why did it take you five years to tell me that it's rude when I don't you invite me in my house? It took, she's like from this shy, she is more of a shy culture. And she didn't tell me that what I was doing was offending her for five years. Almost two of those months, our family lived in their house. We were homeless. They took us in. The white people were the homeless people in the Ethiopian's house. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, and she, it still took all that time of building a relationship and becoming friends before she really told me, when you do that, that offends me. And I was so glad she told me. And I said, thank you so much for telling me, you know. But my point is, is then because of this experience with my kids growing up with all these different, you know, colors of the rainbow, coming to our house all the time and all this kind of stuff, my kids' primary ex- exposure as children was that the, the black people that they knew, the people that did not have white skin, were the wealthiest of our friends, they had the biggest houses, they drove the nicest cars, their kids went to private schools, etc. And that was my kids' 
subconscious exposure to being, think about how that different that might be from like your generation, what you were exposed to, right? Those different, so my kids, you know, it's just whatever color, blah, 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 just like what Logan's saying. And so that, that's a gift, a present that I, that we can give our children is ex giving them the privilege of realizing what it's like when everybody's on equal footings. Everyone's coming to your house. You're going to everybody's house. You're eating all their food. You're eating whatever, you know, where they're, what's in their cupboards. All this kind of stuff, this natural living life together thing. And it does take a lot of time and it was worth every, sing every single minute of it, but it was also worth it for our kids because now that's what our kids' pers perspectives is and it's different than, than how you know, our parents were raised, you know? So even if you're like a grandparent age, it's like you might not totally get it, you know? It's like just the way you're raised, whatever. I'm not trying to make excuses or whatever, but I'm saying maybe you want to get it, but maybe you can pass on a gift of realizing, you know what? I don't want my grandkids to think that way. I don't want them to feel that way. So I'm going to, you know, even take them to glad tidings and I'm going to, you know, and help them meet some friends with people that don't have the same skin color. Both directions, of course, you guys know that. But um, anyway, um, and for our experience, it was internationals, it, you know, so international, multicultural, and U.S. multicultural, all together, you know, in one, you know, so there's just this super, you know, big pile of people floating all together, and it was awesome. So anyway, I think just to be thinking proactively, if you know, if you know, what can I do to invest in the future to, into the future of the church, you know what I'm saying? The future of the church, the future of God Titans, the future of the church, Big C, to say, so that we can be thinking differently and sewing differently and so on. All right, I hope you found that to be helpful. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. Can we say thank you to our panelists? They were really amazing. And uh, although I wasn't here this morning to, to hear uh, Hook, uh, I got to listen to him online. In fact, it was so good, I listened to it twice this afternoon. And uh, so thank you, Pastor Wallhooker from Bellevue, for being with us the entire day. Love you, man. Awesome. And uh, we want to encourage you to continue these conversations in your small groups. And, and again, not just talking about it, but actually doing some practical things there. Um, God is building a very uh, multicultural, international church. And not just here in Omaha or Glad Tidings, but around the world. Um, here's what's interesting to me is um, whenever... Whenever the nations come together and the different cultures come together, the Spirit of God is right there as well. Anytime we see that in Scripture, we find, you know, the day of Pentecost. God chose that day when all these different nations from around the world were together in Jerusalem for a feast, right? He chose that day to pour out His Spirit. And so... I think it's so, this is, it's not just, hey, let's just all get along. Let's just talk reconciliation. No, this is about revival. <laughs> this is about the heart of God and, and his desire to pour out a spirit on all flesh. So this is, this is much bigger than, hey, let's get along. Let's, let's talk well about, and that's important. But God desires to pour out a spirit on all flesh. Um, and that's what we're going to believe for. Um, I want to close as we pray, but I, I thought, you know, if Jesus were here and he were on the panel, what would he say? And then I found it in the Bible, so I'm going to read it. <laughs> By the way, Paul said this, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And so we have a responsibility on our part to be at peace with everyone, right? But not everybody wants to be at peace with us. And when that happens, they consider us enemies. And this is what Jesus said. He said in Luke chapter 6, 
He said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. And that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. God, I pray that we would, we would take the mercy that we have received from you and we would distribute to everyone we come in contact. God, help us to be your ambassadors, your representation on the earth. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. Help us to love one another in such a powerful way. That, re- that revival will come to our land. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you for coming out tonight.